Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Developments, or CID as we call it, speaker series podcast. My name is Jamar Williams, and I am a joint MPP MBA student at the Harvard Kennedy School and Business School, and also a CID student ambassador. This week, we're joined by Sharmi Suryanarain, Chief Impact Officer of Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator. I'm sitting down with her today, December 3rd, 2021, to discuss lessons learned from Harambe's 10 years of work towards designing inclusive employment solutions for South African youth. Um, Sharmi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jamar. Really great to be here. Let's start with the basics. So for our listeners who are new to Harambe, can you speak a bit about the organization's history, its mission, and its key activities? Sure. So Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator is an African solution designed to solve the global challenge of unemployment through partnerships. So we are a social enterprise. We are born and bred in South Africa. We were founded about 10 years ago in partnership with an organization called Yellowwoods to address this challenge, this really seemingly intractable challenge of youth unemployment. South Africa is one of the most unequal countries in the world. It has a very high youth unemployment rate. And at the time when Harambe was founded, really, it was surprising because a lot of large-scale organizations were still struggling to find entry-level talent. So Harambe was trying to address the so-called demand-supply mismatch. Young people were looking for work, employers were looking for young people, but they weren't able to find each other. And so at the start, Harambe was designed to address this challenge, but since then it's actually grown quite quite rapidly to scale, to address both the youth and employment challenge, but to really to address the system and systemic barriers to unemployment that young people face on a daily basis. Yeah, thanks so much. So Harambe has been around for nearly 10 years now. How have some of your you know, activities, your key goals and objectives, how have those changed over the past 10 years as challenges around youth unemployment in South Africa have also evolved? Sure. Yeah, great question. I think, um, like I mentioned, so we, we started out by working with sort of demand supply at the heart of the issue. To give a very specific example, we, we saw that young people were clearly, you know, capable of doing so much, but they weren't able to signal to the labor market what they were capable of. But, and on the flip side, we found employers struggling, constantly saying they couldn't find young people for entry-level jobs. And oftentimes they would advertise for entry-level roles and say they needed five years experience. And so we clearly knew that, you know, even then that was a red flag. So we worked with employers on the one hand to advocate for much more inclusive hiring. And by that, we meant dropping things that were unnecessary, like degree requirements where they weren't necessary, or um, experience where, where it wasn't necessary, and even going further. But more importantly, really breaking down what a job was to say, what is the really the core of the job required? Do you need high mathematics marks? Or do you need a specific skill that's a subset of what you need in what math could actually show you to do? And then on the flip side, then work with young people to showcase that competence and ability. So schools, grades and CVs, et cetera, are very poor indications of what young people can actually do. And young people are actually capable of so much and young people are typically very rarely idle. And yet um, they're unable to showcase what they can do through the labor market. So at the beginning, it was solving that mismatch and designing assessments that really could say, what's the true potential of a young person? What's the real job? Can we match based on that? Mm -hmm. And if we need to skill and, and train for any gaps. So that was the heart of what we did. We did that for several years and built an evidence base over 10 years that inclusive hiring inclusive job creation can be done. And it isn't necessarily based on where you went to school or, how, or what your grades were, but what the job requires. How we've shifted over the past few years, especially is 
that alone was not enough. And that remains the core of what we do, inclusive hiring and inclusive job creation, but we needed to actually shift the system overall. So it wasn't enough that we pathwayed however many thousands of young people, we need to actually shift the entire system. So working at the policy level, working at the systemic level to say, you know, we have a decade of evidence that suggests transport was a huge barrier. We saw that, for example, if young people took more than two taxi rides, a taxi is a equivalent of a public bus in South Africa. If they took two taxi rides or more to work, the retention stats would drop significantly. So we would encourage employers to say, consider transport stipends or consider proximity when you are hiring or for the first paycheck, give a transport advance because usually most people can't get to work. So, but how do you make those systemic shifts, not just individual employers is the, is the goal for the next 10 years to say, okay, how do you, how do you partner with employers across the board to, to make this the norm? Can you drop degree requirements for jobs that don't need it from a systemic basis, et cetera? Can you, can you encourage all job websites, especially for entry-level jobs to be free, zero rated, and very easy to access for young people. Because we Mm -hmm. saw young people being forced to jump through hoops, basically, you know, trying to fill out a job application and their internet would hang. And, you know, submitting that over and over again consumes lots of data and that's money. And, you know, young people are are typically really struggling to, to, to afford these things. So moving away from just sort of the matching and pathwaying and inclusive hiring from employer to employer to looking at it at a systems level has been a big shift. Actually, it's a shift that we're planning to do for the next few years. So it's just we're at the start of that big shift going forward. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it seems like in the past decade, you've been able to stay true to your core mission, but also gain a lot of insights, the information that you've been gathering, the data and, and really learning how to adapt to these evolving challenges, which is obviously really important as, you know, the, as, as things like disruptors like COVID-19, you know, really challenge the work that you're doing and, and the mission you're, you're able to carry forward. I'm actually very personally curious about your career as an, as an opportunity activist, you know, which has spanned nearly two decades across um, different social issues and geographies, including spending some time here at Harvard for both your undergrad degree and your master's degree at the Graduate School of Education. But one constant in your career, it seems, has been youth. And I'd really love to know more about how you develop this passion for the youth empowerment and how that's carried you through all of the different experiences and roles you've held in your career. That's a great question. So to be honest, I haven't thought about that a lot, but I think it's both from a family perspective and a personal perspective, something that's very core to my heart. So I come from originally, I'm originally from India and my grandfather uh, was a, um, one of India's in my community and many people may or may not know this, but India's equivalent of the caste system was effectively like an apartheid and we had segregation and segregated schools. So my grandfather was one of the first principals to oversee integrated integration in his school. And it was a very core part of his identity to make sure that schools were integrated in the South of India where I'm from. And it was something that, you know, was a source of pride for our family that, you know, this was something that we, that was our mission to be a part of. But then coming to the United States for my undergrad degree at Harvard, I was a scholarship student and and I really struggled. And I found that, you know, it was difficult. I was uh, one of very few students that came from, from India and also from the international community. And I really found it important that, you know, paying it forward to people who had opportunity, but didn't have necessarily all of the supporting sort of wraparound support 
were, mm -hmm. were afforded that. So I think early on was really keen on education, both for my grandfather and his experience, but also working with and meeting a lot of young African students, both in the United States, but also eventually in my um, in my work in in South Africa. It was it was clear that talent alone isn't enough. You have to have so much more going for you, and you need so much more support to make it. And I think for me, you know, my work at African Leadership Academy was very core to that. So um, was helpful to I partnered with them to create Africa Careers Network and this um, Department of Lifelong Engagement to help young Africans from ALA access opportunities um, throughout the world, um, including programming support when they do land in university as first generation students there. And so that's now bled into sort of the employment space, which is, you know, opening doors for young people is, is core to my heart. So, you know, just making sure that, you know, um, opportunities aren't necessarily about just the elite people who sort of like can walk through with the sort of right CVs and credentials, but people who really deserve it and who aren't necessarily able to advertise their skills. Mm -hmm. So my, my sort of mantra is sort of to widen the gate, not to lower the bar and to also demonstrate to employers and opportunity holders that you're not reducing, you're not accommodating um, young people you're including young people, but more importantly, you're transforming the system that you work with to say mm -hmm. that there's excellence is diverse and excellence ought to be diverse and comes in many shapes and forms. And so, yeah, it's sort of like a golden thread that I think has come throughout my life, but I'm very privileged to have the opportunity myself. And so really hoping to, to create the space for others. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you so much for um, sharing a bit of your, your personal history. That's empowering to hear, especially as a first-generation college student from, from the U.S., but just to hear um, about your story and how that's kind of aligned you on this path towards where you are now. It's, it's really incredible to hear. So it looks like COVID-19 is here to stay with us for, for the long haul. And obviously with, with varying levels of effect unfairly across different countries, depending on vaccination rates and access to vaccines. Can you speak about the impact of COVID-19 on informal and formal economies in South Africa and how that's exacerbated challenges specifically around youth employment? Yeah, my goodness, COVID was really rough and still remains quite rough for the African continent as well and South mm -hmm. Africa. South Africa had one of the most stringent lockdowns in the world and definitely yeah. on the continent. There's about a six week period where it's incredibly stringent and there were several millions of jobs lost as a result. And it's interesting, our research showed that, you know, those that were hardest hit were youth and hardest hit were black African women for a couple of reasons. Youth were in jobs that were most exposed. So tourism, retail, it's hospitality, severely affected by the lockdown, high contact jobs, and women in particular, because schools were shut and childcare became a huge need. And most women just dropped out of the labor force, didn't come back. And obviously with South Africa's um, racial inequality has that, you know, the whole significant proportion of that was black African young women. And so the, the impact of that was that, you know, many people who were already sort of struggling were pushed into very precarious, both unemployment, but also poverty. And I think schools getting back was great, South Africa had a significant sort of social relief distress program and a stimulus program to help. And I think that's one of the big areas where we're trying to push with the partnership we have with the Presidential Youth Employment Intervention to say, what are the short-term opportunities in a jobless growth economy where the jobs are still not coming in in terms mm -hmm. of formal sector job growth? What are the short-term opportunities we can create for young people such that they're not discouraged and hopeless and can get a foothold back into the labor market? A big push has been this short-term employment stimulus program where, for example, the Department of Basic Education created Half a, million young, half a million pathways for young people across South Africa through teacher assistant programs in about 26,000 schools. These ranged from curriculum assistance to teaching assistance to COVID screeners, et cetera. 
There are four month opportunities, but the exciting thing is it was four months of income and um, visibility now on our platform that you could potentially say, okay, you've done with the four months, what next? Can we you know, nudge you to the next opportunity now that you're on mm-hmm. our platform? And so those are some examples, but we've also partnered with some areas where jobs are growing. For example, the contact center industry, which interestingly, because many international investors were trying to diversify risk, they brought jobs into South Africa, even at the height of the lockdown. And we tried to push for regulations for contact center, call center jobs to be part of that. And so we've seen a growth in that space, which we're trying to push as well to, to encourage more young people to, to take advantage of as well. Um, but yeah, it's been really, really hard. And I think across the board, I think women have suffered the most, especially with care obligations. So that's a big personal area of interest as well for me to see if we can push investment into the care economy to both specifically with early childhood um, jobs to encourage more young women and men uh, to take advantage of the jobs, but to help women stay in, in the labor market as well. And, and you kind of hinted towards this in, in a, a couple of your answers to my questions already, but Harambi has done um, an incredible work across sectors to advance its mission partnering with civil society, businesses, and and the government to advance youth employment in South Africa. What is, from your perspective, the role that local governments, international development agencies, and the private sector that they can play to help create more sustainable employment opportunities for youth, especially during times of crises like like COVID-19? That's a great question. I I think we've been lucky to partner both the presidential, well, we, we actually have partnered with government since day one. Well, we've kind of built that partnership over the years. We've partnered with the city of Joburg, with Gauteng's provincial government, which is the big economic hub in South Africa, and now with the presidency and the national government. The role of local government cannot be understated just because local government, um, well, it depends on which country, et cetera, but they hold so much of the community's well-being in its kind of purview. So schools, libraries, you know, sanitation, et cetera, mostly managed by municipalities. And they're usually you know, in South Africa, at least, there's desperate need to improve many of these services and so much is needed. So local government is can be a huge job generator, whether it's, and you can think of it as short-term ineffective jobs, like waste picking, et cetera. But there are opportunities that can both lead to other opportunities, but also if well-managed can transition young people to, to higher paying or longer duration jobs as well. Teaching assistant jobs being one of those, or even, you know, green economy, we are thinking of climate change is a huge issue. So, you know, how do you think of local government playing a role in generating jobs in that space, I think is a really critical one. There's a, a really fabulous economist that's helpful in, in architecting the stimulus program in South Africa named Kate Phillip. And she constantly says, there's so much work that needs to be done. Most of it isn't being recognized or paid for. So the, the question is, how do you make the work that's needed in each of these communities to build the communities valued, recognized, and the skills gained from these actually recognized in the labor market more broadly going forward. So that's a big piece of the work that we hopefully will be doing going forward also. Looking forward, but doing so with a reflective mindset. Can you share some of Harambe's major lessons learned over the past 10 years and how they're relevant to developing effective future policy responses to youth unemployment? Sure. I think one of the biggest lessons we've learned is to listen to youth and to have young people <laughs> help drive, you know, the solutions rather than coming in with solutions that, you know, are seemingly smart, but aren't really yeah. relevant on, uh, and aren't right. I mean, I'll give you a specific example and it may be quite, you know, specific and concrete, but <laughs> really like big in inclusion on multiple dimensions, you know, gender, race, uh, socioeconomic, et cetera. And we're great, you know, we're lucky in some senses 
may be self-selected, but our network is 63% female, 99% black, and you know, socioeconomic status uh, in terms of how uh, you classify quite significantly excluded youth. And we really wanted to address you know, our understanding of excluded youth. And we had some survey questions designed where our young people who manned the call centers were asking questions of other young people. Quite quickly, we realized that the questions being asked weren't helpful or effective. And there were questions designed by you know, economists. And you know, we, we knew that both the young people asking the questions and those answering it weren't comfortable. So we needed mm-hmm. to rejig and understand how better to ask questions that are fairly, you know, private and personal and, you know, do you have a toilet or a roof over your head? And those are typical questions that, you know, surveys ask, but the young people actually taught us and trained us to say, you know, there's different ways of getting at this kind of question to get exactly the answer you want in ways that are empowering, in ways that we want to, you know, we're comfortable exploring. And so listening to young people to even as simple an exercise as gathering data is really important. So what we've learned is listen to the young people, put them at the heart of what you do, of almost any exercise. And then the second, perhaps the second big thing is your solution is not going to be perfect for every context. So fall in love with the problem, not with your solution. And if you need to actually iterate on your solution, so be it. So you can have a really slick product, but if it doesn't work, you've got to constantly iterate. So fall in love with the problem that you're trying to solve, not with the solution. So Mm -hmm. those are just a couple of examples of what we've learned along the way. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, really focusing on the problem instead of and coming to the problem with a curiosity that doesn't preclude you from you know potential solutions that you didn't have in mind before. Um, and and you know having like that agile reflexiveness. I'm wondering from from your work and your experience, have you been able to maintain that agility? Are there any best practices that Harambi carries forward to make sure that you are maintaining that? approach in terms of loving the problem and and not coming to the problem with an already made solution? I would say that our biggest, we don't have a toolkit or a guideline on this, but our biggest single piece of sort of our, our core competency in this space is our culture. Our organizational culture is nimble. It is transparent. It's relatively flat in terms of hierarchy, et cetera. It's very empowering. It's very partnership oriented it's we also have a lot of fun we kind of like you know you know enjoy working with each other and collaborating and so I think that has actually stood us in good stead because it's not about sort of like an overly bureaucratic sort of top-down top-heavy approach but it is about a culture that's very collaborative very sort of nimble very sort of listening oriented and I would say that I've never worked in an organization where I've both felt like I'm having so much impact but also having so much fun in in, mm-hmm. in doing so in a way that with colleagues that I truly love and work with that, you know, so for me, I think our culture is a huge part of that. And we, we do that, we embed that in various rituals. We have rituals like, you know, we have a twice a week stand-up call with our entire organization where we give awards, we give shout outs, we, we have a pre-roll song. And because young people are at the heart of our, our work, you know, I can run a really fancy workshop on measuring income. But if I can't make it exciting by having like, you know, a couple of hip hop songs that actually just <laughs> orient what income is about, it's actually not meaningful. And so I think for, for us, it's about having the impact, but having the fun and having building a nimble, agile culture that's very collaborative and listening oriented, I think is probably our, our secret sauce. And yeah, we, we have a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah, that's I mean, and I can only imagine that's even more important and critical when your organization is solving a seemingly intractable issue, you know, one that's so complex and one that could, you know, has been so persistent 
having a culture where, you know, you're actually there for each other, you're collaborative, you're also having fun throughout the journey, you know, kind of, it kind of keeps the momentum going. So that's really inspirational to hear. So my final question, so our listeners include students, academics, policymakers, and the like. Everyone has a role to play in applying lessons from this pandemic. What message or messages do you have for our listeners to help build resilient solutions to youth unemployment and socioeconomic mobility around the world? Sure, I mean, gosh, um, I guess it's much of what I said before a little bit, but maybe to encapsulate, one is put young people at the heart of your solution and listen to them because I think they're really going to drive solutions and ultimately it's, it's their future. And I think empowering them to, to be solutions creators alongside of others. Um, partnerships are key. No single organization, no single product, no single institution could really address this issue. So multi-stakeholder partnerships are really vital. I'll still maintain, you know, demand-led approaches are, approaches are really important. So we, we've seen that, you know, skilling just for the sake of skilling, and I have a personal mantra, which is, you know, skilling needs to be short, sharp, cheap, and efficient. Learning should be lifelong, but skilling for a specific job has to be as quick as possible and very demand-led. And then the last would be sort of what I mentioned, which is falling in love with, with the problem, not your solution, such that you're nimble and able to actually adapt to the requirements at hand. Thank you for sharing that. You can find more information about the Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator at harambe.co.za. Thanks again to Sharmi for taking the time to talk with us. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. And thanks again for listening and we'll see you back soon.